welcome back to another episode of The Spooky Ripped Mom. My name is Peyton Kennedy, and today we are talking about Iowa. Now, before we get into it, I want to say Iowa was extremely, extremely hard. And I say this because, so I was researching Iowa and everyone I came across was like John Wayne Gacy or someone else who committed crimes elsewhere, did one minor thing in Iowa and then moved on. And it was so hard to find someone. And when I finally did find someone by the name of um, Gano Gilbert Smith, there was not that much info on him. And I was like, I maybe have a 15 minute episode right now. And I just put out a spooky episode that in my opinion was not the best that I could do. I can't have Iowa have a 15 minute episode. Like it has to be way better than this. And so I was telling my husband like a couple different things that I could do. I was like, Bailey, I could do Iowa and Kansas together. I mean, it might be, depending on how long Kansas is, it could be anywhere from a 45, a 30, 45 minute episode to like an hour long, maybe more. And he's just like, well, if you can't really find like the most notorious or prolific serial killer, why don't you find one of, even if it's unsolved, one of the like worst murders of um, Iowa? And I was like, you're a freaking genius. So that's what I did. I'm not going to say the second case that I'm doing in this episode until the very end because I don't know how this makes me seem as a person, but it is a case that has always, it's from 100 years ago, and it's a case that always has my attention and something that I've always been interested in. And I can't believe that I forgot that it took place in Iowa. So um, you can thank Bailey for this episode because he really saved my life when I talked to him about it the other day. So God bless Bailey James Kennedy. Um, other than that, let's just jump right into Gano. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce his name. It's G-A-Y-N-O. I could not find anything about his childhood besides his birthday. And he used to live in Iowa. He moved away to Denver. That didn't work out. So they moved back. He moved back to Iowa. And then that's it. That's it. So he was born on January 23rd, 1938, which makes him an Aquarius. Um, Before he, you know, killed people, like I said, he lived in Denver. When that didn't work out, he moved back to Martinsburg, Iowa. His stepmom allowed him to move in. He did end up having some problems with her. So he moved um, in with his uncle Andrew and his uncle, like Andrew's family. They lived in rural Iowa on a farm. So there's it's important to keep this in mind there's like hardly any neighbors around my family lives in rural in like indiana and they have surprisingly a neighbor uh, like three acres away and another one that's like five or six acres away once you get past those two houses it's like half a mile to a mile until the next neighbor depending on where you go um, so, and that's very important to keep in mind because on May 27th, 1962, 
Andrew and his wife, Dora, had let their three kids, Amos, Anna, and Donna Jean, drive to Brighton, Iowa for a dance. Now, it is important for me to tell you that Donna um, had a baby. His name was Perry, and Andrew and Dora had said they'd watch him while they went to the dance. Gaino had gone along to the dance with them. It said he hung out for a bit and then left. He did come back and pick his cousins up when the dance was over. People described that night as very heavy rain. There was thunder. There was lightning. The family, um, and by family I mean Amos, Anna, and Don and Jean, went out with Gaino to get food. And when they came home, all the lights in their house were out. And a few people said that was weird because Andrew and Dora would have definitely waited up for their kids or would have at least kept a light on for them. So the kids thought it was weird and they grabbed flashlights and they started to investigate. Well, Donna and Amos went into the garage and that's where they found their parents um, who were dead. They had been dragged into the garage and when Donna and Amos called for help, they realized that all the lines for the phones had been cut. And then all of a sudden, Gaino appeared with a flashlight and a gun. Sorry if you hear that weird noise. It's my air conditioning. Um, Gaino then shot Amos in the face and then shot Donna. He then proceeded to shoot Patsy in the shoulder. Um, and Patsy is sister to Amos and Donna and um, Anna. So I had to go and double check that I was correct on that one because I wrote it and then I had to kind of in my notes moved around how I was gonna like talk about this night. Um, and so I had put that Patsy was the sister like later in the episode than what I had originally intended. Uh, so anyway, Patsy was one of the was a sister to them. Um, he shot Patsy in the shoulder. Then they realized that almost was still alive and he had asked Gano to stop and Gano's reply was shot was shooting Amos in the face. So while he shot Amos again, Patsy was able to escape and she went and hid in another room. But when she went into that room, she found her older sister Anna and Anna was dead. So Patsy ran out of the house and while Gano chased her into a ditch, she later, just a, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Okay, whatever. Uh, just a little, like, oh my gosh. Spoiler alert. That's the word I'm looking for. So just a little spoiler alert. Patsy did survive, and she told people that it was like playing cat and mouse. She was having to constantly duck and crawl and hide um, because he had a flashlight, and if she moved in the way of the light, he'd be able to find her. Um, but she was able, um, this happened until, like, the next morning, and she was able to come up to a farmhouse that was near-ish by, like, it wasn't as close, but she finally came up to a farmhouse, and, um, the people that lived there welcomed her in, gave her the phone, and she called her uncle Furman Macbeth. Well, when Gaino realized she got away, he went into hiding, um, but he was found four days later near Lake Wapello, or Wapio, if it's Spanish. 
Um, and once he was arrested, he immediately confessed to murdering his aunt and uncle, as well as his cousins. But then he also confessed to killing Juanita Smith, which is his stepmother, who he had lived with um, in Hendrick, Iowa, until they had a falling out. But at this time, she had been considered missing until he confessed, which means he killed her back in October. And we are... Remember, we're in May of 1962, so this was in October of 61. Gaino murdered his uncle Andrew, who was 51, Dora Macbeth, who was 41, their three children, Amos and Anna Macbeth, they were both 19. I don't know if maybe they were like Irish twins or they were actual twins, but they also killed Donna Jean Kellogg, who was 17 years old, and her son, um... Perry, who was six months old, was still in his crib when detectives came, and he was unharmed. He also killed Juanita Smith, which was his stepmom. And at this time, Iowa still had capital punishment, and the prosecution team was like, we want him dead. We want him death penalty, ASAP Rocky, like, we're not doing this shit. Um, but so he wouldn't get the death penalty, Gaino pled guilty to all six murders. Which, like, yay. Um, but when he play, when you plead guilty, instead of going in front of a jury and they decide your fate, a judge decides your fate. So the prosecution went to the judge and they kept arguing, arguing the death penalty. Because in quotes of the prosecution, he attempted to exterminate an entire family. They brought in a psychiatrist, and that psychiatrist said that Gaino was completely sane now and then. Like, it was totally an unprovoked situation. I mean, we don't know where he went after the dance. I mean, I'm assuming he came home and killed his aunt and uncle. Um, but we don't know if, like, an argument happened. So on paper, it looks like a very unprovoked mass killing. Um, the defense did not call any witnesses because the defense believed that their client was sane. They believed that the crimes were premeditated, and their goal was just to ask mercy from jo uh, Judge C.R. Carson. Judge Carson found him guilty of five counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder, and they sent and uh, Judge Carson sentenced him to six consecutive life sentences. Now, you, I do have an update about. Harry. At six months old, he was um, adopted by Uncle Furman. Uncle Furman's the one that Patsy called and was like, hey, my whole family's just been executed. And so um, he raised him along with his nine other kids. And what Perry had to say when he did some interviews, and these are, this is a whole quote, said, all the way through school, I was a bully because I wanted people to hurt as bad as I did. I hated everything and everybody. I'm sorry, I'm sorry about that now. When I see these those people today, I try to tell them that, but they don't understand, end quote. And I love that he apologized for it, but it's not the kids he bullied's, like, fault. Um, and it's not their job to forgive him because it was definitely very unprovoked. And their feelings are completely valid, but I'm glad he apologized because most bullies don't do that, and they just kind of like, mm, I never bullied you. You're fine. Everything's fine. Um, Perry did graduate, though, from um, Pekin Community High School. And then in 1971, Gaino had the fucking audacity, thinking he got some big kahunas, 
and he filed for a motion for a new trial. Thankfully, it was denied. Um, and in the Waterloo Cedar Falls Cur uh, Courier, when they interviewed Gano in 1974, so this is from a newspaper article, Gano had accepted that he would never get out of prison, but he was able to get an education in prison. And during the time of this interview, he was actually going through college. He had a 3.75 GPA with um, the cooking program that he was a part of and a 3.3 GPA in academics. He wanted to work with juvenile delinquents because he wanted to help young people. He also wanted to make changes to the prison. He wanted to speak to the Iowa legislator. And this is a quote from him. I'd like to talk to them about this institution itself, above some of their, about some of their laws and some of the rehabilitation programs. All prison systems are inhumane. You take a man from society who fails when he's in an abnormal situation and put him in one of these places, it's an abnormal situation here in itself. You say to the man, rehabilitate yourself. You don't send a person on the street to a mental hospital and say, make yourself well. There's nothing in here for, to change you. You can let prison society destroy you or you can get some education and change yourself. Which like, if he hadn't killed his whole entire family, he probably would have done some good for the justice. I mean, it took him going to jail to realize that like things are like this, but if you are on drug charges or car, th or car theft, we do need to change the prison sentence or system. But sir, you are in jail for murdering your entire family six people and you think that you would be able to get out and get rehabilitated absolutely not no it was ugh. this piece of shit died on may 16th 2005 um it said he suffered from heart problems but there wasn't exactly like what he suffered from when i tell you i could hardly find anything on this man anything about anything it was so hard um, before he died, he was sent to the hospital, and he was cremated and buried in Mount Zion Cemetery, which was next to his biological mom's plot. I'm not sure when his mom died. I could also not find her name or his dad's name. Um, and when Perry, he was cremated and buried next to his mom, and when Perry heard that he had died, he said that he wished he would have just gotten the death penalty from the start, and he quoted saying, I'm glad he's dead. It was the best day of my life. I hope he burns in hell forever. And I totally get how he feels. And I stand by his statement 100%. Totally. So before we get into the second case, I did that episode in one take. Sometimes I have to go back and like fix something that I've said or something I said didn't come out and make sense. Oh, I did have to do it once. When I couldn't think of the word for spoiler alert, I stopped. But I don't think I went back. I think I just left all my pro thinking process in. And then just like went about what I said. So I'm very proud of myself for not like one take. Like, let's go, bitch. Who am I? We get my life together. Um, so, and that was also almost 15 minutes long, which was uh, like five minutes more than what I had. So I'm a little excited about that. Um, so the next case we're gonna talk about um is the Velisca murders. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, you might get interested in it after this. If you do know what I'm talking about, it's a very interesting case. Um, 
So we're going to jump right on in. The Velisca house was owned by the Moore family, and they it was in Velisca, Iowa. Josiah, who went by Joe, and Sarah had four kids, Herman, who was 11, Catherine, who was 10, Boyd, who was 7, and Paul, who was 5. Josiah was born um, on December 29, 1868. He's originally from Illinois, and he was described as a prominent businessman, and he owned his own hardware store in Villisca. His uh, wife, Sarah Moore, was originally, um, before she got married, born as Sarah Montgomery. She was also born in Illinois, and of course, because it's, you know, I'm going to be talking about the 1912s, she was a stay-at-home mom. Herman, their first son, was born in 1901, and people said that he was always with his dad. He was described as quite his father's son. I think that just means he's more like a daddy's boy. Uh, Catherine was born in 1903. She was friends with the Stillinger sisters, Lena and Ina, and they're very important to this story as well. There was not much about Boyd and Paul because they were five and seven, but the Moore family bought the house in 1903 where they lived until June 12th of 1968 not 1968 1912 I said 1968 because I read 1868 but I'd already said 19 I we're done you're done the Stillinger sisters were Lena and Ina they were um best friends with Catherine and their mom and dad were Joseph and Sarah. They were born on their family farm. Lena was 12 and Ina was 8. They had seven siblings. Edith, Ed, Lester, David, Blanche, Ralph, and Ada Lou. Um, Lena and Ina's family attended the Children's Day service with the Moore family. And they were planning on sleeping over at the Moore's house. The Children's Day service was at the end of the year. It was a Sunday school program where Sarah uh, Moore was the co-director. Her kids and the other kids were in the Sunday school. They had their own speeches. They gave it to the church. And after church, everyone socialized until about 9.30 p.m. Then um, the Moore family with the two Stingler sisters walked back home, which was about three blocks. And when they got there, they had cookies and milk. Um, and then it was like a little after midnight on min, a little after midnight on June 11th, someone came in and grabbed Joe's axe from the backyard, then entered their house and started killing the, like all the all the family members, including the Stingler sisters. So the next morning, a neighbor named Mary Pickham noticed that the Moors weren't outside doing their normal like morning chores and it was really quiet so she called joe's brother ross to come check out check it out and in my notes i said that ross was the town's druggist which makes it sound like he was like the town's drug dealer which in a way he was but a druggist in the 1912s was basically your like a pharmacist um and so he got to his brother's house around 8 a.m and he walked in the house where he found two figures that were covered with a sheet in the back bedroom. He also noticed blood on the bedstead, um, which I think is just like a bed frame. But before he continued investigating, <coughs> Bailey came home from lunch and when he closes the garage door downstairs, like to come into the house, our bedroom door upstairs jiggles and so I'd be started barking. 
Um, so rather than Ro- Ross looking around the house for more things, he immediately called the hardware store that Joe owned, and he asked Ed Seeley, um, who was an employee there, to get Marshall, or to get Marshall, to get the Marshall, who was Henry Hank Horton. And in quotes, he said, because something terrible had happened. So Hank arrives at the house around 8.30. He came out. He said that there were, he came out of the house and he goes, there's dead bodies in every bed. The axe had been partially cleaned and it was leaning on the south wall in the downstairs bathroom. And that's where Lena and Eno were sleeping. All victims were found in their beds. The first of the victims were Joe and Sarah. And the killer only used the blade of the axe on Joe. Sarah got the blunt end. Blunt end. Oh, there's that beep. Lena and Ina were um, also the last victims to be murdered. Their, the killer had covered their heads with bedcloths, and there's everyone's school had been hit in the. Oh my gosh, hit in the head. What? Everyone's school had been hit with the axe twenty to thirty times. The ceiling where Joe and Sarah had been found and the children's room ceiling all had gouge marks and this was caused by the upswinging of the axe. Lena was found with a blood stain on her nightgown. She was the only one who attempted to fight the attacker. I think she probably heard the noise happening upstairs and woke up. She had a blood stain on her knee as well and defensive wounds on her arm. Now, in a couple articles I saw, they said that she's the only one to believe to be sexually assaulted by the attacker. But in other places, I read that that was just a rumor and she actually wasn't sexually assaulted. So the other thing that Marshall Hank noticed was that the killer left a four-pound slab of bacon leaning against the axe on the wall. He went through the dressers and he covered the mirrors in the house and also the glass in the entryway door with pieces of the victim's clothing as well as like blankets. The killer also made a meal put it at the kitchen table, but then didn't eat it because the marshal found a plate of uneaten food as well as just a bowl of bloody water. Um, The funerals for the Morse and the Stingler sisters were both held on June 12, 1912. They had it in Villisca's Town Square. Thousands of people showed up. The National Guard had to come in and block the street so the hearse could make its way down to the firehouse because that's where all five all five all eight victims were in their caskets the caskets weren't on display and were carried to the Velisca cemetery sorry if you heard that jingling i'm like moving in my chair to get comfortable and i hit my desk um so now things get weird with a reverend because um reverend lynn george jacqueline kelly just gonna call him uh reverend kelly because that's a lot so reverend kelly was on the five the number five train on June 10th at 519 in the morning and he was headed west. So this was the morning that the Moors had been killed, but it was before they had been found. Um, and he told passengers on the train that there were eight dead bodies back in Villisca and he told them that they had been butchered in their beds while they slept, stating the bodies had not yet been discovered. Reverend Kelly had only been in Villisca that Sunday morning which was the morning of the murders, because he attended the Sunday school performance by Sarah Moore, and then he left the next day, Monday morning, when they were killed, but then he came back two weeks, you know, later, and this time he acted like a detective, which was weird to me, 
And he went on a tour of the murder house with a group of investigators. Now, the real authorities caught on to Reverend Kelly and started to suspect him. And a few weeks after this, um, some people had alerted him that at one time they had received rambling letters from Reverend Kelly. Now, you might be wondering, okay, but like, besides him having this weird, oh, people died in Villisca, who is Reverend Kelly? Well, he is the grandson and son of um, two people that were part of the English ministries. And when he was a teen and a young adult, he had suffered a mental breakdown. In 1904, him and his wife had left England and moved to America, where they started, well, he started, she followed him, started preaching at Methodist churches in North Dakota, Minnesota, Kansas, and Iowa. And he was assigned to, um, as a visiting minister, and he was to go to, like, the small communities just north of Aliska and preach there. Well, people in these small communities said Reverend Kelly had really odd behavior, was just kind of like a weird guy. Um, and they said at one point he started to send them obscene letters in the mail. So then after that, Reverend Kelly spent time in a men uh, mental hospital. Well, eventually a grand jury did indict Reverend Kelly for Lena Stillinger's murder. And this happened in the summer of 1917 where he was continuously interrogated, interrogated, interrogated that whole summer, where they also had him in jail until the trial. Well, then August 31st of 1917, Reverend Kelly confessed to the murders, and he said that God had whispered to him to suffer the children to come unto me. But when the trial happened, Reverend, Reverend Kelly recanted his confession. So the case went to the jury on September 26th of 1917, where they had a deadlock vote of 11 to 1. And so the prosecution worked. They immediately got a second jury. But that jury acquitted Reverend Kelly in November of 1917. And since then, no one else has been tried for the murders. And this remains one of the most horrific unsolved murders in all of American history. I do have some ghost stories for you. So Martha Lynn, uh, she was 77 at the time, which is now 85, but she bought the home in 1994. She restored it exactly to how it was in 1912, which meant it had no plumbing or electricity. And at that time, this was like in 2014, you could stay there for 400 and it was like $28 a night and my notes I just rounded up. But if you're a ghost hunter, she says ghost hunters usually come and stay. And when they come, they bring the like Ouija board, which absolutely not, EVP recorders, or some bring in the original axe to see if that somehow stirs up the ghost. People have reported disembodied footprints. They've noticed things moving. They'll hear voices and they'll even see shadows. And people just say they get super bad vibes there. Ghost Adventures and the Scariest Places on Earth have covered this house in an episode. And at, on November 7th of 2014, a ghost hunter actually stabbed himself while staying at the Villisca home. His name was Robert Jr. Uh, he was 37. He was from Rhinelander, Wisconsin, and he came in with a group of friends. He had been alone in the bedroom that was like the most, most, most northwest. And, uh, 
his friends had been outside. He tried calling his friends for help on the two-way radios that they have, and when they came in to get him, they found him stabbed in the chest. So they immediately called 911, but after calling 911, they realized he had stabbed himself, and Robert was taken to the nearby hospital, um, but then he had to be airlined to Creighton University Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. Now remember, they're in Iowa, so he had to be lifelined to a whole different state. And it is believed that he stabbed himself around 12.45 a.m. And let me tell you why that's a little spooky. That is because it is the approximate time that all eight murders happened in 1912. And it's never been solved. It is still unsolved to this day, more than 100 years later. Like 110 years later. Still unsolved to this day. The nice thing is we know whoever stabbed them is dead. Because that is way too long for somebody to live. God, thank you. Um, and that is Iowa. I think next week is going to be Kansas. Have not picked what I'm going to do yet. Um, really need to do Iowa. Yeah, Kansas. Kentucky is then after that. So, don't worry. And I'm always really bad at the goodbyes, the outros. So, you guys have a wonderful rest of your week. Love you. Bye.